This is District Sentinel Radio, the newscast of record for the left. I'm Sam Sachs. I am Sam Knight. We are broadcasting out of the Sentinel Fort in Pistown, Washington, D.C. Check out the website, districtsentinel.com. Coming off just a huge night for Sentinel faves last night. The Nats sweep the Cardinals, clinching a spot in the World Series. And Bernie... Uh, outperforms my expectations for him last night. Had his best debate so far of the primary. Plugged stints in my heart, if that's the way (laughs) you come out of this thing. And then following the debate, news that he's going to be endorsed by uh, both AOC and Ilhan Omar. And Rashida Tlaib. Well, that's been walked back. She hasn't uh, officially made the endorsement, her office has said. Ah, oops. Guess I... uh... Still big night, though. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Big night for uh, Bernie. Big night for our friends. And a huge blow for most of our enemies. Yeah. Most yeah. of them. Yeah, let's go down some of these enemies from uh, <laughs> the debate night. First, one of the funniest things I've seen in a debate in a very long time, perhaps since Trump was talking about his dick size during the Republican <laughs> debates was Kamala Harris's insistence that Elizabeth Warren join her in in demands that Twitter suspend Trump's account. It's like Warren's talking about breaking up big tech big tech companies and Harris comes in with I'll one up you. I'll one up you on that. Why don't you you talk about breaking up big tech companies? Well, why don't you get behind getting Trump suspended from Twitter? And then she just kept repeating it and repeating it and then went on MSNBC later and was like, did you notice that Warren wouldn't get behind my call to have Trump banned from Twitter? Who is advising this person? She's really desperate to make some kind of breakthrough, but I really don't see it happening. I mean, this is I mean, I want Trump banned from Twitter, but this sort of seems unbecoming of a serious presidential candidate. (laughs) (laughs) It's like uh you know, it's like me getting on stage and being like, I really want Senator Warren to join me in calling for there to be a Royal Farms opened in Washington, D.C. <laughs> <laughs> There's a time and place for it. It's it's not the debate stage. You have to drive pretty... about 30 minutes outside of D.C. to get to that Royal Farms. Also, the uh, centrist Midwest dipshits were insufferable I mean, last night. Amy well, Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg. Watching the two of them, I'm impressed at how skilled they are in making me so mad. It's like they were engineered in a lab to piss me off with every single thing they said. Everything Klobuchar said last night made me mad. It was just full of lies and folksy bullshit and basically a lot of dog whistle racism talking about the Midwest. Yeah. Oh, the Midwest, the Midwest. Come to the Midwest where I do good in Michelle Bachman's district. Ugh. And it's I've, disgusting. I've done good about not watching a lot of MSNBC lately, but after the debates, I've been turning to MSNBC just to see what the dipshits are saying over there. And it's become so predictable after each debate. And as I was watching, I was like, I guarantee you, that MSNBC afterwards is going to say, strong performance by Klobuchar tonight. <laughs> 10 out of 10. And I really think Mayor Pete did did a lot of good for himself tonight. And sure enough, that's what they were doing <laughs> afterward. 
I I did think Warren Warren was struggling. Warren, she should have, in my opinion. Well, she struggled for the same reasons we've talked about on this show, that she's not good with answering this question about, and she's going to keep getting, yes, it's a right-wing question, but Bernie's able to handle it. About taxes. About taxes. Yeah. Yeah. It it set her off to having a bad night from the beginning. I don't think she had that bad of a night, but uh, she struggled early with that. Yeah, maybe maybe she didn't have that bad of a night, but she she certainly seemed like she could have done better. I did think her brightest moment was uh, when she told Pete Buttigieg that his insipid Medicare for all those who want it means health care for those who can afford it. Yeah, that was good. Also, and, and, when and, and, Joe and, Biden acted really strange and started yelling at her about <laughs> how he whipped votes to get the uh, Dodd-Frank bill passed. And then she was like, I want to thank Barack Obama. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was pretty funny. I uh, One of the most annoying things Mayor Pete did was reply to Warren's thing about his Medicare for all those who want it plan was being like, well, the subsidies will be there. And one of Warren's staffers replied on Twitter, like, actually, they aren't. They're nowhere uh, in your plan. So uh, fuck you, Mayor Pete, for yeah. uh, just continuing with your fucking I mean, insufferable shit. I mean, building off what I said with MSNBC, they're going to try really hard to make Mayor Pete a thing. I don't think Amy Klobuchar is going to ever be a thing, no matter how hard they try to make her a thing. Mayor Pete is getting lots of big money donations. They're going to try really hard to make him the next Joe Biden because everybody can see the writing on the wall with Joe Biden, particularly with reporting like this coming out of the Daily Beast today. Headline, Joe Biden bleeding cash spent nearly $1 million on private jets. Biden's team spent more than $923,000 on private jets during the third quarter of 2019, according to uh, FEC data. The expenses um, all made to this private jet company represented a major chunk of change, uh, roughly one out of every $16 to the campaign went to flying Joe Biden's old ass around private jets. And he's just not pulling in the money needed to keep that up. I mean, on its face, it's ridiculous. It might be less so if he was actually getting the financing he needs for it. But this really also, this is pretty funny, uh, considering one of his major attack lines last night was, I get things done. You're spending a bunch of money on some private jets uh, you can't afford because you can't get things done, Joe. Yeah, the campaign's already setting expectations that they're going to get trounced in Iowa and New Hampshire. <laughs> anyway, uh, just one last thought for me I, uh, on the get things done front. I thought that was Bernie's best moment last night, one of his best moments last night was when he listed some of the things that Joe Biden gets things, has gotten done, and they're all terrible. Obviously, we don't need to go through the itemized list. We all know what Joe Biden has done in his career, but this is the kind of thing Bernie needs to do, and he did it very well last night. The other moment was uh, when he responded to the question about his health. I thought that yeah. was that was very strong, too. Yeah, uh, Bernie is back. No doubt. I'd been feeling pretty down about the campaign, pretty pessimistic. Uh, that changed a lot last night, particularly with these uh, endorsements, which, I mean, who knows how, how big they were. I think AOC is a very popular figure within the Democratic Party. So I think her endorsement is a big deal, particularly if they all go out and are campaigning for him uh, around the country. And 
this wasn't an easy choice by AOC, and I've been very critical of her in Congress a lot. <laughs> um, I, I've probably been a lot more critical of her than I've given her praise for anything. But to come out and endorse Sanders right after he had a heart attack, when he is third in polling, and yes, we can say, well, these polls haven't been uncucked yet. <laughs> but, <laughs> I mean, he is polling third. Um the odds are he is not going to win this nomination. It's going to be very difficult for him to win. It takes courage to come out and endorse him at this point. And uh, well done uh, on her for doing that. Yeah, I didn't think she was going to make any endorsement until just before Iowa, but bam. Sometimes cynicism leads us to the wrong answer every now and then. <laughs> All right, it's Wednesday, October 16th, 2019. Here's the news. Awaiting confirmation that the month-long UAW strike against General Motors is ending with a new contract for workers. The 48,000 striking workers were demanding better pay, profit sharing, and protection of their health benefits. Reuters reported over the weekend that GM upped a lot of their offers, including increasing a ratification bonus by $1,000 up to $9,000. GM also, quote, proposed 3% pay raises in the second and fourth year of the four-year contract and 3% and 4% lump sum payments in the first and fourth year, respectively. The company also agreed to make temporary workers who've been at GM for three years permanent workers and give them a $3,000 ratification bonus as well. But a major sticking point in the negotiations has been job security as the company has refused to commit itself to keeping manufacturing plants in the U.S. No word yet if any new assurances are part of the deal, which again itself hasn't been revealed yet. Uh, the UAW leadership confirming that they do have something finalized, though. Uh, it still would need to be approved by leadership and rank and file membership at UAW. We'll probably know more details later today or tomorrow so we can update on the next newscast. Meanwhile, as one strike reportedly winds down, another one is about to get started. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot announced closure of the city's public schools on Thursday in anticipation of the Chicago Teachers Union strike. The labor group voted to authorize a strike earlier in the month over disputes over wages and class sizes. The union also wants schools to be better staffed with social workers and counselors. Mayor Lightfoot claimed the teachers' demands would cost $2.5 billion and that the city can't afford it. The action affects more than 30,000 teachers and support staff in the city, plus 300,000 students, who, in my opinion, are pretty lucky they get to both enjoy a few days off school and see firsthand a badass labor struggle, which hopefully ends in them learning that direct action gets the goods. If you want to hear what Chicago teachers are saying, listen to our interview from earlier in the month with Kenzo Shibata, a member of the CTU bargaining team. It's available on all of our streaming platforms. Some other interesting labor news. There were... A strike has been averted locally that would have featured about 10,000 janitors, mm. 10,500 janitors uh, with SEIU, local 32BJ, and they reached a tentative deal just as their contract was up. This is according to the uh, D.C. Labor Listserv, and details on the uh, deal will are set to be released on Monday, October 20th, after it's ratified. So... Congrats to local janitors, potentially, for getting a new deal. 
The Department of Homeland Security is inviting public comment on rules governing immigrant orphans in the United States. What could possibly go wrong here? Today, the agency published a proposal in the Federal Register inviting analysis on so-called special immigrant juvenile petitions. In 2011, the Obama administration asked for public comment on a proposed rule about this status, but it never finalized the initiative. The Trump administration says it's bringing up the matter now because, quote, both the public and the government will benefit from clarifications regarding eligibility and procedures for the SIJ classification. Surely this has nothing to do with the child concentration camps at the border. The SIJ classification was created by Congress in 1990 to grant legal status to undocumented kids in the U.S., people under the age of 21 who are abused, neglected, or abandoned by their parents. A legal publication called The Los Angeles Lawyer noted this has its roots in Northern California in the 1980s. Despite amnesty to undocumented immigrants, which was granted by the Reagan administration, quote, Immigrant children in the Bay Area were aging out of foster care or being adopted out of the system without lawful status, end of quote. This is obviously concerning in the context of the family separation policy pushed by the Trump administration to punish asylum seekers. Many of the thousands of kids ripped from their parents' arms at the border ended up in foster care. As the Associated Press noted in August, already dozens of families are claiming kids were abused in state custody. There are still thousands of immigrant kids awaiting reunification with their parents, even though family separation was officially stopped last year. As Time noted in September, the status of these children hinges on where separation occurred, where their parents are, and whether they've joined class action litigation against the Trump administration. Turning to Capitol Hill, the head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, Kathy Kraninger, was called before the House Financial Services Committee today for an oversight hearing where she was grilled by Democrats about a new committee report finding that she is not compensating victims who've been defrauded by banks. While the CFPB in the past has required companies engaged in wrongdoing to compensate victims, you might remember during the debate last night, Warren talked about how the Bureau has returned billions of dollars to defrauded customers. Well, in recent years, that's changed. The committee noted that under Craninger's leadership, three of the first five settlements did not include any restitution to victims. One case highlighted by committee chairwoman Maxine Waters involved online lender Innova International, which illegally debited customers' accounts. In other words, they stole customers' money. The CFPB confirmed that this happened. The company admitted it. And career staff at the CFPB argued for victims to be compensated, but Craninger overruled them and approved just a $3.2 million settlement with the company, no restitution. And here she was trying to justify that to committee chairwoman Maxine Waters. They took the, well, let me ask you, did they take the money from consumers' account without their knowledge? Did you find that was true? That is certainly the case. That okay, is that is true. And, okay, and, all right, yeah. thank you. Having done that, and having done your investigatory work, et cetera, you got to the point of a settlement, is that right? Yes. But you denied the victims any compensation, why? It is a negotiated settlement. It was the Bureau's estimation, my estimation, and the recommendation of the staff that we engage in this settlement discussion with Inova and that that was going to bring Okay, may I may I interrupt you for a moment and tell you that your career staff advised you 
that you should compensate the victims, and it was overruled by your political staff. Is that right? Is that true? Uh, Did your no, career staff advise you? Did your career staff advise you that they should be compensated? Every case is no, just this case. Did I they expect, advise you? I expect a robust. Did they advise process you, Ms. Ms. Did your career staff advise Kathy, you answer that the this, question. these victims should be compensated? Did they advise you that these victims should? Yes. Did your career staff <laughs> advise you that they should be compensated? The decision on the settlement was mine. That's pretty bad. Uh, the only thing that would make all of that worse is if Waters had evidence of some sort that Inova actually offered restitution to defrauded customers and Craninger was like, no, you keep it. Don't worry about it. It's all good. That would look really bad. As I understand as I it, Inova offered $1.6 for the consumers. So they basically said, yeah, we did it. We were wrong. We should have compensated, but I guess we can offer them $1.6 And you said no. Is that correct? Why did you say no? Chairwoman, again, there is a lot of back and forth. No, no, I don't want to know about the back and forth. I just want to know, first of all, did Inova offer $1.6 to the consumers? Is that correct? Chairwoman, it was a negotiated settlement. Did uh, they offer $1.6 to the consumers who had been harmed and you turned it down? Just tell me, did they offer $1.6 Chairwoman, you're, ref you're probably referring to documents that I don't have in front of me. Well, yes, you again. do. Uh, listen, I beg to disagree with you. And don't try and come to this committee and not answer the questions and filibuster and pretend not to remember. This was a big case. They offered 1.6 million and you turned it down. You turned down the advice of your career employees. You took the advice of your political appointees and you knew exactly what was going on. This is why I can never get fucking exercised whenever someone's like, oh, some awful Trump administration official lied to Congress and that's a crime <laughs> because it seemed like there were about like at least three lies in the two clips you played at least yeah. definitely one yeah. where she said her staff advised her on this. And I mean, this no should be a cares. big scandal, but this is just the way things are operating now at regulatory uh, agencies for yeah. the most part. Um, Kathy Kreninger just doing monumental work here, standing athwart <laughs> the CFPB yelling no. <laughs> as they try to collect even meager restitution, $1.6 million, the company up there like, no. She's like, don't even don't even worry about it. Don't even worry about it. That's all pretty bad, but Kreninger also admitted to being an agent trying to dismantle her own agency. Here she was confirming that she told the Bureau's general counsel to reverse course in a case before the Supreme Court and argue that the Bureau she now heads has an unconstitutional structure. First, you'll hear... A question from Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney. In September 2019, you indicated in a filing with the Supreme Court that you now agreed with the position of the Trump administration that the Consumers Bureau's independent structure, which limits the president's authority to remove a director solely for cause, was unconstitutional. Yet just a month before, the CFPB, consistent with its longstanding position, filed a brief in another case arguing that the Bureau's structure was 
unconstitutional. And the Bureau's general counsel assigned both filings, the one stating that the Bureau was constitutional, and then the later filing asserting the exact opposite. So my question to you is, did you direct the general counsel or other CFPB career attorneys to change positions they previously argued to various courts regarding whether or not the structure of the Bureau is constitutional? Uh, yes, I did direct the change. <laughs> well, uh, at least she's upfront about it. Finally, the United States government claims to have targeted Iran last month with a cyber attack. Reuters reported the boasting today, citing two anonymous U.S. officials. The pair said the operations focused on Iran's ability to spread, quote, propaganda. The assault allegedly took place in late September and impacted Iranian government hardware, though it's unclear if it actually did have an impact. Reuters noted, quote, the impact of the attack, if any, could take months to determine. Iranian officials, meanwhile, are denying that any such U.S. cyber operations ever took place. Javad Azari Jaromi, the country's Minister of Communications and Information Technology, said, quote, they must have dreamt it. The alleged cyber attack was said to be a response to the September 14 drone attack against oil production infrastructure in Saudi Arabia. U.S. and Saudi officials blamed the Iranian government. Responsibility was claimed, however, by the Houthi rebel group in Yemen, which does have ties to Iran, but many analysts believe these are exaggerated by the U.S. and Saudi officials. Whether or not last month's attack actually happened, the U.S. has definitely launched cyber attacks against Iran in the past. Under President Obama from 2009 into 2010, U.S. forces unleashed malware called Stuxnet against Iranian nuclear facilities. The attacks damaged centrifuges inside of Iranian facilities. If the shoe had been on the other foot, the U.S. probably actually definitely would have ordered a full-scale regime change invasion. We'd be parachuting into Tehran right now. Well, I'd be in Canada. Well, they'd be parachuting into Tehran too, probably. Actually, well, since this happened about 10 years ago, we probably would have lost the war about three years ago. True. <laughs> all right, that is the newscast for today. Hey, we need all the help we can get here in Town, going up against all the giant ship merchant media companies here so if you have any spare cash this month consider subscribing at patreon.com slash district sentinel five bucks a month you get access to everything we put out all the newscasts plus bonus content like an interview we did yesterday about the need to municipalize pg and e out in california that's patreon.com slash district sentinel five bucks a month or as little as you can spare one two dollars a month whatever whatever you can afford and we'll write you a haiku and read it on the air all right we're back tomorrow we're here in dc so you don't have to be